0: Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Look at your word. Examine the scriptures, Father. I just pray that you would open our hearts. Lead us, Father, into a deeper knowledge of and a deeper appreciation for who you are. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, the Bible tells us, in James, it tells us that if we want God to draw near to us, we must draw near to Him. I mean, that kind of makes sense, you know, in relationships. If you if you know somebody and you like somebody, you need to get to know them. You need to draw close to them. The difference is that, hopefully, in our human relationships, they want to draw close to us. But how do we do this? How do we how do we draw near? to a a god who is spirit a god who is all powerful a god who has existed forever it, it seems like a herculean task it seems like a task that would be next to impossible to do i mean how can how can i relate to a god who created everything how can I, how can i do this and the church itself has been fighting over what this means since the first century trying to understand, trying to see what does it mean to draw near to God. And, and at times I'm, I'm, I know that this, this debate has gotten extremely heated. You know, I grew up spiritually at a time that it was the peak of what we call the worship wars. I was involved in those on both sides. Some churches were fighting, saying that the only music we should be doing now should be be, relatable to our culture, so we should be doing contemporary music. While others were fighting for the idea that, I'm sorry, you need to do traditional hymns. Then there were those who kind of took the best of both worlds. See, the problem with the worship wars is that I, I think we got off track Today, what seems to draw needs to draw near to God has not actually remained within the confines of worship. We normally think about drawing near to God. We come in, we worship Him, and we draw close to Him. But it has expanded out further now. See, there are, there are churches who hold true to the literal interpretation of the Bible. Because understand that if you really want to know God, the one place you can go, you should go, the only place you should go is the Bible. It should be at least the beginning. And there are other churches who take a more liberal view that says that, well, the Bible is not God's word. It's, it's not inerrant. It means it doesn't have, it, it's not perfect. It's not, it doesn't tell you what you really need to know. It's, it's just a bunch of people who got together and, and wrote this book, these books, and we really can't trust it, at least on these issues. And they have a list of issues usually dealing with social issues. And there's a wide gambit of churches today throughout that. Now I believe that in in my forming years of, uh, of my faith, that the worship wars were actually the subterfuge of the enemy. I believe it was a way to get us off track, a way to get us distracted from the truth. Because I think both sides missed the point completely. Because neither side answered the main question. How do we draw close to God? Well, in order to answer that question, we must go to one place. We have to go to the source. We have to go to Scripture. So if we want to know how to have a relationship with God, we need to go to His Word because we need to know what he is expecting of us out of the relationship, just like we do with anybody. If if my wife and I are, have expectations about each other, and neither one of us tell each other what those expectations are, we're both going to be very disappointed. And I'd have no right to tell my wife, you're not meeting my expectations if I never told her what my expectations were. Even if, Believe me, even if my expectations were ridiculous, I still need to tell her so she can tell me, you're ridiculous, right? Because in my mind, I think my expectations are fine. So we do that in our faith. What do we do? We think, well, you know, if I just go to church on Sunday morning, if I just, you know, pray when I need to, that's God's expectation of me. But if we read Scripture, we find out that there's a lot more to it than that. In fact, we're falling way short of what God's expectations are of us. And I I know some people don't like that idea. I don't like God to tell me what I have to do. (laughs) Well, he created you. He's God. You're not. Same thing he told Job. I'm God. You're not. Get over it. Right? It's basically what he told him. If you want to draw close to God, we need to know what he expects out of our relationship. And we're blessed... Actually to have his word, to have the Bible that tells these these things. But it's, it, we have to look for it. We have to read it. We have to know it. <clears throat> and this is one reason why I think it's so disturbing for me today that some churches are looking at Scripture and saying that it's not God's word. It's not in Aaron. It, it's got so many problems with it. Even though we, I can answer just about probably all the problems people have with it, with common sense, but we know today common sense doesn't matter. Common sense is gone. So what we're going to do, we're in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is going to help us think, and we're, he's gonna, it's going to help us see how God thinks. And this may shock some of you, but I want you to understand that God is not concerned about whether the worship is traditional or contemporary. Understand that the traditional church music was Contemporary at that time. <laughs> all music is contemporary and all music is traditional, ultimately. But that's not what God's concern is. And how do I know that? Because his word says so. He is more concerned with what is acceptable versus unacceptable worship. And he's going to tell us what worship is acceptable. We know in, in the book of Psalm. This is what the book of Psalms tells us. This is God speaking, or this is, I think David wrote this one. He's talking about what God says. God says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, it, it doesn't say the sacrifices of God are modern music, or the sacrifices of God must be with an organ, or the sacrifices of God must be an animal sacrificed on an altar. What does it say? Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Sweet worship to God is worship that is full of the spirit of repentance. A word that a lot of churches don't like to teach about and don't want to even bring it up. Oh, don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about feeling sorry about what you did. No, we want people to be happy and know that God is love and he accepts everybody. Sorry, (laughs) it's not the way it works. It hasn't worked that way in the past and it doesn't work that way in the future. Our verses today that we're looking at are going to focus on worship and it's going to focus on repentance. God is saying, I want you to repent of your worship. Because it's unacceptable unless it overflows from a spirit of repentance. So first we need to understand what repentance is. Now, we might think that repentance is this, you know, I sit down and I just do this deep thought introspection of who I am. Try to find those things that I'm doing wrong. That's not what it is. Also, some people might think, well, repentance is self-punishment. I mean, when I do something wrong, I should get punished for it. So, you know, there were monks who, to pay penance for their sins, they would whip themselves on their back until they were bloodied. And they thought, I've paid the price for my sin now. True repentance is actually given to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's a privilege, because what it does is it opens our eyes to the evilness and the sin inside of us. Have you, have you ever you know, had a, a, a train of thought but you thought it was true, you thought this was what it was, and then somebody proves to you that it's wrong, and that the truth is this, and you're like, wow, I never, I never realized that. That's what repentance does for us. It, it, it opens our eyes to actually how sinful we truly are. And not only that, it opens our eyes to the fact of how much our sin cost us in our lives. And how much it cost God to eliminate those sins. See, what repentance does for us is it allows us to step into a new life. What we do is when we repent, we're, we're, t- we're looking at our old shifty self. We're saying, I don't want that anymore. I know that doesn't please God. I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm sorry, God, for what I've done. we walk into what's called the marvelous light of a new life in Christ. Walking from darkness to light, true repentance will lead us to worship God. That's why God wants a contrite heart. Because when we repent of our sins, we realize how who we are compared to God. We repent of it, and we want to worship him because he paid the price for it. I now don't have to whip myself, I don't, even though I deserve it. I don't have to do all these things to try to pay penance for my sins because Jesus Christ took the cost on the cross. And he says, it is finished done and if God and the Holy Spirit is the source of our repentance because we know that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance and we talked about that I think last week I said you know that kindness is the, the, the price that Jesus paid for us it leads us to repent. That's what's authentic about it, because it comes from God. And I want you to understand, and I always say this about repentance, repentance is not a one and done, I repent of this sin and I'm done. If I sin again, I need to repent again. Yes, it's been paid for, but I need to realize that I'm not living, I'm not running the race like I'm supposed to, and I need to repent of that. My wife loves me. Sometimes I don't understand why. (laughs) Why? She loves me. The first time I did something wrong in our marriage, I said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. Now, the next time I did something wrong, I can't go back and say, well, I already said I was sorry to you. You know, 23 years ago, I said I was sorry. I don't need to say it again. In my humanness, the reality is I probably should be saying sorry to her every day. (laughs) And she to me. But we need to repent. It's a constant thing we do. We don't beat ourselves up, we take it to Christ. But see, it's not about the method or the mode, it's about the heart. God says it's a a humble and contrite heart that matters. Now, I will, I will argue a little bit that, yes, it is the words, when we worship especially, I'm, I, the words matter to me, and it also matters who wrote them and what, they, what they're teaching. That's why we don't do Bethel and we don't do Hillsong music. But I want to be honest if you feel like you're struggling in worship, the first place you should go to is you should seek repentance. Because true worship comes from a heart of repentance. If I'm not repentant... I'm not going to be able to worship right. It's not going to be pleasing to God. The time, you know, if you get here at quarter till and there's music playing in here, coming in here and sitting down, it's a great time to say, okay, God, I don't know all the things I've done wrong this week, but I'm sorry if I've I've missed the mark. Bring them to my attention, repent of them, and then worship what Isaiah is going to do we're going to see what he's doing here he's he's holding a mirror up to the israelites and i think he's holding that mirror up to us to say look what you're like can you re- you need to look at yourself realistically and that mirror is the perfect it's not you know i love those circus mirrors that make you look thin okay it's not that mirror it's not the one that makes you look fat either the mirror that god holds up to us is actually reflecting us, but it also shows him. And we see that we are imperfect in our own abilities. We are. We need to surrender to God daily, moment by moment. And later in his book here, we're going to see how God saves people like us and like the Israelites, so that we can become the new Jerusalem. What we're going to see is there's two, there's two sides of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, there's also bad news of the gospel. The bad news of the good news, you might say. The good news is it's free. Jesus paid the price. He died for us. He rose again. He gives us hope for eternity. The bad news is, is in order to experience the gospel and to experience repentance, we must come under, we have to let us come under a holy God. We must come under judgment of a God who is perfect. But the beauty of it is that he made a way for us to come under his judgment and yet not to be sent to hell where we belong. We come under his judgment to be said, Child, I have forgiven you. My son paid the price. Come, be with me. And we experience salvation. So last week we saw that, you know, you and I, we're uncomprehending people. Isaiah was talking to the Israelites saying, you guys, you just don't understand. You don't get it. And I think that's where we all are today. As a church, as a church in general, the larger church, and I think as a society, we just don't get it. As I said, common sense seems to be out the door sometimes. We don't get it. But now what Isaiah is going to do, he's going to reveal the hypocrisy of our worship especially of the Israelites, but I can I can see some of this in my own heart and the dangers in it. And he's going to do it in four steps. He's going to confront them. He's going to accuse them. He's going to invite them. And then there's a decision that has to be made. So let's begin with confrontation. Um, open to the book of Isaiah. We're going to do Isaiah 1, verse 10. This is the confrontation. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of of Sodom. Remember, he called them Sodom and Gomorrah in last week. He says, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. At the end of a, last week, at the end of the sermon, I talked about the fact that both Isaiah and Paul ta- reference this idea that if God had not saved some of us, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Understand that in Sodom, four people came out, only three survived, because one turned back, turned back, Lot's wife. Of all the people, those were the only ones who survived, three. We would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul said it, and he referenced Isaiah. And now he's again saying, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, could you, could you imagine the people of Jerusalem what they were thinking? They're thinking, wait a minute. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean calling us Sodom and Gomorrah? Have you seen our temple? The gold? Have you, have you seen all the sacrifices that we make on the altar? Have you, have you seen our the priests and how they dress up? Have you have you seen the people in the courts? And you you tell us we're sick and we're desolate? Oh, come on. Give me a break. We're the people of God. We're God's chosen people. Now, we, now, again, we may not be perfect, but you know you got to give credit where credit's due. We do some pretty amazing worship. How dare you say that we are like Sodom and Gomorrah? And I think today that the church would respond in a very similar way. What do you mean? I mean, have you seen our worship services? Have you seen the thousands of people who come? Have you seen the thousands of people who watch us online every week? Have you experienced our worship service? Have you seen the people getting emotional and raising their hands and or in other churches? Have you seen the people speaking in tongues? I mean, have you seen all the programs we have to to reach the needs of every person? We have multi-million dollar budgets. We give millions of dollars to missions, God. Did you not see that? Look at our campuses. Oh, we have more than one campus. We have multiple campuses. Come on, come on. You can't say that we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're prophesying. We're healing people. How dare you say that we're like Sodom and Gomorrah? How quickly we forget what Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty-two through 23. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? He's talking about the end of days. He's talking about the end times, which I will argue we are in. We have been since the cross, since the resurrection. But I think it's we're ticking closer. He, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to understand. I am not saying that every large church that has multiple campuses is guilty of this. Because there are a lot of small churches that are guilty of the same thing. But Isaiah doubles down. He says, you're right. You're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. You are Sodom and Gomorrah. Because he calls him, He's confronting them. He says, listen to me, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. He says, you are these people. See, that's that's the confrontation that needs to happen when we are called to repentance. When we're called to repentance, God says, this child is who you are. Because we, I am not who I think I am. We like to think much highly of ourselves than we probably should. Now I'm not going to beat myself up about everything. I'm, I'm pr- a pretty good person. Pretty good, most of the time. And you see, if you go on long enough, you, you'll get yourself down to where you realize you really are not. If it wasn't for Christ, I would not be. See, what we need to ask ourselves is, what have we become? Do our lives reflect what it really means to be a believer in Christ? Do people look at us and say, yep, there's something different. That person knows Jesus. What have we become in our homes, in our professions, in our our deepest thoughts? It's not just about what you do. It's about what you think And that for me is, the. I mean, I can do a lot of good things. I can make you believe a lot of good things about me. But it's in here that matters. Because remember, what is the kind of sacrifices that God wants? A contrite and humble heart. Only God knows a man's heart. It is only when our confidence has been shaken about who we think we are that we can actually hear God's word in a fresh way. So what is he saying to us? And this is where the accusation comes in. In verse 11 of Isaiah 1. This is God speaking. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What is it to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I've had enough of it. It doesn't mean anything because your heart's not there. But we sing to you, Father. We sing to you all the time. Yeah, but where's your heart? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. God is saying, I have had it. I've said this to my kids a lot recently. I've had it up to here with you and your worship. It's not really what he says. He says, "I had it up to here with your worship," because he loves us. I tell my kids, "I've had it up to here with you talking back to your mother. I'm done with it. Now, when I hear it, you're gonna you're gonna pay the price because I love you and I love her." Now, the Israelites, I imagine, and, and I'm just speculating here, but I could imagine that some of them might be thinking, "Now, wait a minute." You're saying you don't like our worship. You don't care about our worship anymore, but we didn't come up with our worship. You did, God. Don't we do that? As people, we blame God for it. That's what Eve did, what Adam did. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam says, that woman you gave me, he blamed God. And I'm sure the Israelites thought, wait a minute, I don't. it was your idea to do these things. But again, remember what I said. It's not about the form or the mode of worship. That's not the problem. The problem is the heart. Jesus himself. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. See, we could have a form of worship that is biblical, that's bountiful, it's impressive, but at the same time it can be lacking. How? How is it possible? You know, we, we. I've been to a lot of worship services in large auditoriums. They take all the lights down. They have spotlights on them. They have colored lights going all over the place. And and and, it, and it's, we think it's worship. I had I had a I was on a on a, watching a video and they were talking about bad worship and they were comparing worship to a concert and I said the problem today is that you go to a concert and people consider it worship I'm sorry when I go to see third day or any Christian band I don't consider that worship now I may worship in that but that's my heart worshiping but that's not them that, they're not they're coming to entertain me I'm going there to be entertained but see, worship is not about entertainment. Worship is about the heart. Are you worshiping? And the problem is today that a lot of churches have become entertainment. Well, pastor, we, just, we can't stay anymore at this church because we just don't get anything out of the worship. What do you mean? Well, have, have you listened to it? It's not that good. Oh. So your heart's my fault. Wait a minute. No. It's not about the mode. It's not about the method. It is about the heart. And here's what Isaiah goes on. He says, he says in verse 12, he says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Well, I just, I, need to go to, I need to go to church. I need to go, we need to go to the temple. This is what the Israelites would say. We need to go to the temple. We need to go to the temple. Because if we're at the temple, we're seen, and there's other reasons for it. And that's not everybody, believe me. There were a lot of people who had the right heart. But the heart of worship is drawing near to God, entering into his presence. But this thing that is beautiful can actually become trampling underfoot. We see this in Jesus. Jesus himself was offended by the vulgarity of the worship in the temple. In the book of Mark, chapter 11, it says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money. You guys know the story of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He says, you have made my father's house it's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations for everyone and you've made it a den of thieves. So it's just this trampling of foot that's happening. you're just coming in here. so all these merchants would come into the court of the Gentiles and, and the, the priests would they would pay the priests for certain spots, charge exorbitant prices for everything because they had people. you couldn't give money to the temple if it was Roman money, so you had to change your money over to temple money and the exchange rate was exorbitant. So the priests are making money, the people are making money. Nobody's worshiping. And people would have what also would happen is there was a gate that led right into the worship, but they would come, instead of walking around the temple mount, they would come through it and walk through the temple mount through the court of Gentiles to get into the city. They weren't coming to worship. They're coming to walk through the temple. It was a shortcut. That's why he says, he says that he wouldn't allow him to carry anything through the temple. See, when our worship shifts from the immediate presence of God to the methods of how we worship, no matter how biblical or proper our worship may be, God says that to him our worship is spoiled. Why? Because our hearts aren't right. Our worship becomes the noise of shuffling feet on the pavement or car doors slamming in the parking lot. I, I've been to some worship services. I've been to some worship services in a large auditorium, and I just felt God's presence, and it was awesome. And I've also been to some where I sit there, and then I'm like, why are we doing this? Why are we, it's, all, it's, all, it's not real. And it wasn't just my heart that was doing that. I could, I could sense more than that. A real encounter with a holy God, can be so easily lost in worship. Why? Because of our heart. Verse 13 of Isaiah 1, he says, Bring no more of your vain offerings. I don't want them anymore. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I say in he, Isaiah he's getting to the root of this problem. Two clues here are seen in verse 13. God God doesn't want vain offerings. Or in other words, offerings of nothing. This is the first clue. Offerings that are vain are worthless because it's not about the amount here. Remember, Jesus in, in Mark 12, Jesus is he's with his disciples and he sits opposite the treasury and watches, because there's, there's a place, if, if you go from the court of Gentiles and you go into the court of the women, and only Jews were allowed to go into the court of the women, and only women could go that far, there was a box. And you, you would do, like we have back there, you would go and you would drop, and they didn't have giving envelopes, okay? So when you drop coins in, people heard it. They didn't have online giving either. We do, but they didn't. But he sat down, he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. You could hear them. They had coins. They didn't have paper money, by the way. It was coins. They didn't have paper money at that time, in that place. So they would drop coins in. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. What did he do? He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, he says, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. It wasn't the amount, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I want you to understand, I am not telling you that you need to go empty your bank account and give it to the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not telling you that you, you can just not give anything. You need to give what God is telling you on your heart to give, but you must have a humble and contrite heart to know what he wants you to give. It's simple. We have to go back to what Psalm 51.17 said, Our offerings must be out of an outflow of a broken spirit. A humble and contrite heart. The second clue is deals with this iniquity. God, God just doesn't say that I cannot endure iniquity. You know, I can't stand it. I can't stand it when my kids do this. Right, I, I'm, I'm saying that all the time. Not that they do a lot of bad things, but there's one certain thing that they do repetitively. I can't stand it. And if I, it, it you know this. You see somebody do something you don't, don't like, what starts to happen? Your blood starts to boil, doesn't it? You start to get angry. Especially if you see some injustice happening. We well, get angry. That's not what God. God doesn't say He just can't endure iniquity. He says He cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. The two together. He says, I can't stand that you come into my house and you are not repentant and then you try to sacrifice to me. The two do not mix. Now, we might think our unconfessed sins have nothing to do with our worship, right? I mean, it's my I'm dealing with it, but I can still worship God. No, you can't. Not the way he wants it. Remember, we must go to him to see what he wants out of our relationship. God says your unconfessed sins make your worship unendurable to me because your sins reveal what you really think about me. So what's more important? What's more urgent? The form of our worship? or the quality of our lives in Christ. We must be eager to repent of our sins before we attempt to worship God. Well, I don't sin. (laughs) Oh, don't say you don't sin because you do. We all do. We're all sinners. None of us is perfect. None of us seeks after God. Only God is good we sin all the time in thought and in deed. He says in verse 14 of Isaiah 1 he says your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. See the feasts the Jewish feasts were meant to commemorate God. There are, I might do some we might do some teaching on this sometime I hope to about what the feasts really mean. What the, what did they mean to the Jewish people? What do they mean to us? They still did you know that there are some feasts that we will continue to do in heaven and for eternity? But he says, I hate them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. So what is unbearably repulsive to God? Is it hardcore crime? Is it abortion? Is it pornography? Is it the exploitation of children? Is it terrorism? Yes, believe me. All these things break God's heart. But it might not occur to us to think that maybe God really hates more than anything else is what burdens him and wearies him most is that our worship that is offered to him when we're not repentant. Verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, God is making a very damning charge here. He's rejecting what we consider probably the purest form of worship, which is prayer. Even in prayer, no matter how often and how earnest we pray, our bloody hands turn God's face away. We have I always try to teach um, there's a way you can pray that kind of helps you. you know, what do I need to pray? Well, here's what we do. We do what's called the Axe Prayer. We do adoration. We praise God for who he is. The next thing, confession. Confession. Then we thank him. And then we ask him for what we need. Confession, that second one is so important. So important. We must confess who we are in our sins. We must repent. Now you think, now wait a minute, my bloody. My hands aren't bloody. I mean I haven't killed anybody, right? But many, murder can take many forms. Matthew 5, 21-24, here's what Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said that there of, said to there, those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Ooh. And I don't think he means your blood brother. I think he means your brother. Every man, and woman. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave it at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, character assassinations, backstabbing, those dividing walls of hostility that we've seen to put up are not just common in our world today, they're common in the church. And when a church creates a life-depleting atmosphere instead of a life-enriching environment that God wants, then our hands as a church are bloody. And when I say the church, I mean the, the larger church. And this could be why God... Says that even when you pray, I don't want it. A church that's hostile to people is hostile to God, whether the church knows it or not. God is, God is, He's being blunt here. Isaiah has to be blunt so that people can see it. He wants to save them, He wants to save us. If our worship to be saved, it isn't just this fine tuning of the worship music or the instrumentation. Or the performance, it's a fine-tuning of our heart that matters. Then he gives them an invitation. Wash yourselves. In verse 16 and 17, Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's telling them, You're doing all these wrong things. This is the good things you're supposed to do. And the answer is so simple It's so direct. He wants us to repent in our of our obvious ways. He wants us to clean up our lives. Well, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, you do. You have to stop doing it. You have to make a concerted effort to surrender it to Christ every day because you will not be able to stop it on your own. You need him to help you in your life. So you pray to him every morning, Lord, help me not to sin. And when you do sin, you go to him humble and repent and say, Lord, help me to do it again. Thank goodness God is long-suffering. But we must be careful because there is a sin that leads to death and that's the sin that doesn't get repented for. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They sinned. They were dead instantly. He wants us to clean out our lives, and it must be done through active repentance because we are using our active worship to conceal our passive repentance. We come into church, and we, we, we worship, but we're still unrepentant. We're being passive in our repentance. I'll, I'll take care of that later. He's telling us to treat people in the way that beautifies our worship of God. God is saying that true worship does not take place, the place of obedience. But what true worship does is, true worship inspires obedience. And he's ready to meet us with grace. He, he, more grace than we could ever imagine. Because the next thing, which is his invitation, is, is, is irresistible. Verse 18 says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. God's saying, come to me first. Come to me. Let's reason together. Let's talk this out. Let's talk about this. I'll, I'll take your sins. I will remove them. They're gone. Far as the east is from the west. They were red. I will make them white as snow. This is biblical. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And because it's so beautiful and so amazing, it runs the risk of being derailed very easily. The evil one wants us, doesn't want us to repent. God wants us to open our heart to him, and he will open his heart to us. You see, the reason why Satan doesn't want us to repent is because he knows if we don't repent, then we're not close to God. And his whole plan, it's not because Satan hates us, he does, but because he hates God, the Father. And he's at a constant war with him. We are just stuck in the middle of it. Check out the unseen realm. That's what it's all about. We are stuck in the middle of this war between good and evil. Verse 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's it's rather simple, folks. Are we going to be stubborn and we're going to stay in our unrepentance? Or are we going to repent and be renewed? It's not that difficult to understand. It's, It's one or the other. God's appeal is reasonable. It's relevant to us as much today as it was to the Israelites of their time. So, what makes our worship acceptable? True repentance. In other words, cleaning up our lives with compassion towards other people and tenderness towards God. So, what's keeping us from repenting? Stubbornness? Yeah. Fear? Yeah embarrassment yeah but you know what we're all in this together we're all the same place don't be afraid to repent repent and god will draw near to you let's pray thank you for joining us today we hope this message was a blessing to you if you're watching on youtube please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the What Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.